You're listening to the Seasteading Today podcast, where we speak to entrepreneurs and researchers who are making the dream of seasteading a reality. The Seasteading Today podcast. Stop arguing and start seasteading. Welcome, Seasteaders. Today, I am talking to Michael Elliott, the founder of Ventive Float House. Ventive Float House is a company with the mission to build permanent ocean communities using modular structures. Michael has been involved with seasteading since 2011 and realized a path forward for actually building structures a couple years later. Welcome, Michael. Hey, Carly. Thank you for inviting me on. It's great to be here. Great. So tell us a bit about your background and what you were doing in 2011 before you heard about seasteading. 2011, I graduated college <laughs> and uh, I had a, a, you know, when, when I was doing my uh, graduate, not my graduate, but when I was doing my um, bachelor's, I had a choice between writing, engineering and economics, like the three loves that I really wanted to do. <clears throat> and I ultimately chose writing. And it's funny because writing actually drove me back into engineering. So now <laughs> what happened was I started reading the classics. I read a book called Snow Crash. And in Snow Crash is a depiction of a seastead. And it was the first time I had ever heard of seasteading. And I spent literally the next two years thinking it would be just this great like location for a book to be written, you know, like a, like a setting for a book. <clears throat> and I had written a book before when I was 19. Um, and I had a bunch of ideas for books I was working on. So it just became one of those books I was working on the back of my head and, and writing out concepts for. But because I, I, you know, had this love for engineering and it's something I'd always done and I've, I've been building since I was a kid. Um, I got to a point where all the research I was doing was saying, not only was this a good idea, but this could actually be done. And that sparked in me this idea of, wow, let's actually start building CSAs. Like we could actually do this. And that was just so exciting to me. That so that's how is, it got started. That's great. I, first of all, I love the idea of calling Snow Crash a classic. I, I completely agree. <laughs> um, but, and I, I, that also is very um inspiring to me because we did we did do a novelist writing program this year to encourage people to write novels about seasteading or on seasteads for the uh, national novel writing month in november and i hope that will continue because i i mean would you agree that that capturing people's imagination through fiction writing um can inspire and it has inspired with you action in actually making this future come to pass. Absolutely. And the funny thing is I'm still working on my seasteading story. <laughs> well, yeah, let us, let us know when that gets published and we'll, I'll read Definitely. it and we'll, we'll publicize it. Um, but so, so you came, <clears throat> went back into engineering. So tell us a bit about your engineering experience and, and how you got back into engineering. Sure. So I grew up with my dad in a house that was not finished. And so my entire childhood was me and my dad, mainly out of all the other kids, rebuilding this, rebuilding that new roof, new flooring. He had added a section that took literally 30 years to finish doing plumbing, electrical. So by the time I hit 20, I basically had like 15 years experience in in building houses. And 
it was something I was good at. I was always mechanically inclined and all that. And, and I read engineering on the side just for fun, basically. And um, when I chose writing, it was at a time when I, I really didn't think of engineering as something I could go into at that point. I was, I was deciding between economics and, and writing for schooling and, and, and business, actually. And I chose writing and I kind of regret it because it was like everything I'm doing now is engineering. (laughs) (laughs) But when I graduated, I went out to get a job and I ended up, um, I thought, you know, I have this period of time between having to get serious about a job and and graduating. Why don't I go to a machine shop and get some experience working on doing metalworking, something I've always been interested in. So I, I answered this ad for a uh, entry entry level position in the machine shop. I thought I'd be there a month. Um, I get in there and they find out that I had I had experience working with with you know machines with my dad and building stuff, and was interested in helping out with management. And four years later, I was the the second in command of the company, um, managing fifty people and you know a five million dollar machine shop. Um, making a world leading product. And, uh, that experience was just incredible for me. I learned stuff. You, you have no other way to do. I was, by the end of that, I was doing CAD work and building machines and designing products and doing all kinds of stuff like that. It was basically a design engineer position that they built me into. And I loved every minute of it. So, um, that is, that's where Actually, and it's writing that led me into that because they originally brought me into that saying, well, what we want you to do is learn all of our processes and write them down in procedure books. And that necessitated me to learn every single process so that I knew it well enough to actually write an instruction manual about it. (laughs) Yeah. So it was just a fantastic experience. Okay. And then at what point did you learn about seasteading and how did it interest you? So my graduate year of college, 2011, I heard about seasteading in, in snow crash. And like I said, I spent two years thinking about it, researching it. And around that time came about a company called Blue Seed in, in around 2013. And some of your readers may remember that or listeners. Some of you may remember Blue Seed and what their business model was. And I was pretty inspired by it. I thought it was a great idea and they were getting a lot of press. Everyone around San Francisco was in love with the idea. And their plan was to take a, to buy a cruise ship and put it in just outside San Francisco and and build a a seastead island, you know, outside international waters, just outside San Francisco. And at the time I thought it was a great idea, but I thought, you know, what I think seasteading really needs is a single family seastead. I think we need something modular and decentralized. And I was looking at their prop, their, their business model and saying, well, if you get some really successful people in that seastead, they're probably going to want to have their own place instead of a, a, you know, a cruise liner cabin. So why don't I try to build like a single family float house, something they can move up into. And maybe I can attach to the back end of the ship or something to float along with the whole thing, you know, almost like literally the description of what happened in, in snow crash where in snow crash, the seastead was just a bunch of ships all tied together basically. Um, so I began working on designs at that point in, in 2013, after I had convinced myself that this was doable and I was looking at production methods and techniques and what would be ideal. 
and you, you run into a whole new series of challenges when you're trying to create a new structure, but also a lot of opportunities. I was looking at vertical, almost like ice cream cone shapes. And I reasoned that that was very stable in the water and can be you know, very strong against waves. And then I was looking at how to build it and just my, my, my question of how to build it ultimately led to me evolving the design to what I have now, which is a, a capsule shaped device, which is horizontal in the water and can go also vertical. So that's, that's how things evolve for me. Okay. So I'm, so you started thinking about these designs and thinking about first attaching them to the cruise ship that Blue Seed was working on, on getting um, set up. And then, so can you say again, I didn't quite follow with vertical versus uh, horizontal designs. Explain more about that. Right. So my, my first design was this, this vertical idea. And I remember at that time I was working with a guy who was doing CAD for me. And I would, I would try to describe what I was, what I was, what I envisioned to him. And then he would come back and show me what he had designed. And it was such a difficult process to verbalize what I wanted at that point that I knew I had to go and actually learn CAD. <clears throat> so I did. And in the process of trying to figure out how to build something vertical like that, you know, I was thinking of using concrete and I was thinking of, of ways that you could pour it in a single pour and do stuff like that. And I'm not sure exactly how the capsule shape came about from that. I just remember that I had this idea for a vertical thing that you could, I think it was the actual production process that led me to that because um, if you could pour the, um, the shell of the seastead in a single pour is the ideal because then you don't have any seams. And I was looking at the concrete sailboat guys and how they did it. And I realized if you made a machine that was kind of like a lathe that would spin, then you could make a device that could very quickly and easily make an entire shape that was done in one pour with very few people. So that would make it very cost-effective, very cheap and expensive. And yet it would be very high quality at the same time. Um, so, um, and what the structure I have now can be placed vertically or horizontally. And that's also a strength of it, making it, you know, not just modular, but in, in multiple configurations. Does that answer your question? Uh, yes. So <clears throat> at what point did you form Venta Float House? And is Venta Float House um, an LLC or, or formalized in some way? Um, I formed it about two or three years later when we had an actual name come up with and, and the basic process for me went uh, researching materials, researching production methods. So after about 2013, when I started taking seasteading seriously, I started researching production methods, shapes, and materials. Um, I started talking to people about, you know, actually building this kind of thing and got a group of volunteers together and we started meeting on the, you know, quite regularly and throwing out ideas, judging them and refining them until we ultimately came up with uh, the Ventive Float House concept and idea and tested everything from a engineering point of view. I've actually had a couple engineering volunteers as well. And so 
at this point, you know, I spent two years with an engineer going over every aspect of this, uh, making sure it looks good and would actually perform. We've even done some hardcore uh, finite ele elements analysis on it. So <laughs> what, I'm, what I'm left with is a structure that I have a very high confidence is actually going to perform well as a C-stud. <clears throat> so what are, what's the criteria for performing well as a C-stud? Very early on, we identified a material that we wanted uh, called um, geopolymer cement. And this geopolymer cement is not subject to corrosion in the ocean water. So we, we started looking at everything that we could. What did people like about living on boats and what did they not like? Okay. And at one point I had found this list. In fact, I, I wish I had pulled it out here for you. It was like 10 things that people hated about living on boats. And out of the 10 things, nine of them were addressed and fixed by, by the structure we were building. Like uh, people didn't like that they rocked. So our structure's not really going to rock at all. People didn't like that. Um, they had moisture issues and, and they had limited space. <laughs> it's like all these things we address. On a float house, you have 2,900 square feet of space. It's a ridiculous amount of space for you know, just unparalleled in, in sailboats or yachts or anything like that. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we're going to have but a I, mm -hmm. Sorry. I think you're just about to answer my question, which was how do you get rid of the moisture when you're <laughs> right. floating on the ocean? <laughs> yeah. We're going to have a vapor barrier in between in the actual hull. So you don't have literally moisture flowing into the hull, but also you have issues with insulation. We're actually going to have an insulated hull. So sailboats just don't have that. And, and the ocean being cold and then your internals being warm, it creates that that cold like glass effect where the water just mm -hmm. coalesces on the surface of the glass. You need to have insulation for that to not happen. So we have insulation. <laughs> <clears throat> Okay. So the, and so tell us, so the design, it looks a little bit like a pill, like mm -hmm. it's a, and so if I'm understanding you correctly, that shape came about from um, what you're describing as, as trying to create a seamless hull. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Not just that, but one that's going to be strong in the water. You have certain advantages in the water and certain, certain problems you have to deal with. One of those is high wind. So with high wind, um, you, what you don't want is overhanging roofs. Um, I looked at all of the, all of the, like, what do they call it? Houseboat concepts. Like houseboats are not designed to survive on the deep ocean. They're not, they're not survived to be out there. They're really designed to be in protected harbors, rivers, lakes, that kind of thing. So the reason we created the float house term was to differentiate from the houseboat concept because houseboats cannot go where we go or do what we're doing. So, the reason for that shape is one to protect against high wind. You don't have an issue with the wind catching the roof and ripping it off. You know, we're, we're trying to design for worst case scenarios here. We wanted it to be able to survive high winds, even hurricane forces if necessary. We wanted it to be able to, to survive being fully immersed if that would happen. Um, we needed it to survive being moved places if you wanted to move it, even though it's designed to be really good at staying in one place. <clears throat> And so staying in one place is designed to be anchored? Not necessarily. Um, you could either anchor it or you could rely on other methods. There's there's a bunch of options on that um, and different legal implications depending on what you do. But um, yeah, it's not, to, not necessarily designed to be anchored. You could even keep this in a marina. We expect the early buyers would probably do that. 
but yeah, you could definitely anchor it if you wanted to. So, okay. So you've described how, um, the sort of utilitarian aspects of it. And then as far as a comfortable place to live or work, you described this, the, the square footage, how else is it comfortable? Well, we wanted a house that was no compromises really. So when we talk about 2,900 square feet and we, we developed a couple of floor plans, this was meant to be a structure where you could sell your house on land, move all your furniture into it and it just works. So it's not like we have, you have to use special boat stuff like you do on, on a regular boat or a yacht or whatever. There they have to have a special boat, you know, furniture and special boat appliances and special boat toilets. We don't have any of that. Um, you just, it's ocean living with no compromises. Okay. Is that, is that your tagline? That's, that's one of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so what, what are some of the um, uh, barriers that you have to overcome to be able to start manufacturing and selling these? Mm -hmm. That's really the hardest problem is figuring out how to manufacture these. And that's, that's why it's, it's taking me a long time. Um, one of my biggest problems was getting initial funding for this. You know, they have that old cliche that uh, when, you, when you need money, no one wants to give it to you. When you don't need it, everyone wants to give it to you. Mm-hmm. And that's very true in, in the startup and funding arenas. So <clears throat> after I had finished that two-year period of, of testing the design and, and maturing it, I s- spent another two years trying to find funding. And uh, it's not something I'm good at, I, it turns out. So, <laughs> um, But I took this idea everywhere and, and talked to a whole, whole lot of people about it. And the crazy thing is, you know, like I'm a guy who likes to come up with ideas and, and develop stuff, but I've never had an idea that everyone I showed it to loved, including multiple engineers and business people and just everyone. Everyone's telling me to do it. Everyone's saying it's a great idea. Uh, it's crazy. Like usually people are, are just like, wow, that's a good idea. But in, with this idea, it just everyone loves it. So <laughs> ultimately, I did find funding late last year and we are now building. So now my problem is more in my domain, which is how do we actually build this? And we're currently building a one-eighth scale production process, not just the one-eighth scale house. We're actually building the production process in prototype. And I'm very near the end of that stage. We're going to move up to the one-quarter scale production process next. Um, So, so tell us more about that. So what are some of the um, questions that you need to answer when you develop a, a, a scaled production process? Well, this is the structure that you can build with very few people. So we, it only takes about three to five people to build one of these, which is kind of amazing. And the way we achieve that is through spinning on, on a lathe like I was talking about. So a lot of it is being automated. So if you want to automate something, it's a little bit more difficult than if you're just doing it all by hand. So we have certain, we're, we're basically building what's called a filament winder. And a filament winder is the way that they make rockets right now. You take a very strong filament, you wrap it around a form and cure it. And they make rocket casings that way, you know, missiles are made that way. SpaceX does some of their construction that way as well. Um, so it's a technique that has been around since the 60s. It's pretty well known and... They even have desktop winders and stuff like that. We're, we're building one that's a little bit 
more difficult than that because we have closed ends. So the biggest barrier I would say has been trying to figure out how exactly what materials are going to allow us to create a double closed end filament winding structure <clears throat> and how to deal with that. Um, so we, we've progressed from a couple of materials and, and I don't want to say exactly what, what we're doing now. Finally, I think we've, we've hit on the solution now, I think, and we're, we're building it. So it's proprietary stuff for now, but I, I do want to open source all of our technology uh, later on once, once we can make sure it's not going to be used against us type of thing. <clears throat> sure. I mean, that's, that's fantastic news. It sounds like a huge uh, step forward. Um, and so is this something that you're able to work on full time? Yeah, I'm actually working full time on it right now. So the funding I obtained was about a quarter million dollars, enough to finish the full scale structure. That's and fantastic. Thank you. I'm really excited about it. It's going to be, <laughs> it's mind blowing that it's, it's, you know, spent to spend all these years on it and finally be actually building it. We expect to finish a full scale float house this year. That's, that's such good news. Um, uh, and so at what stage can the listeners of this podcast, the general public, um, start thinking about purchasing or, or otherwise getting involved with helping these float houses get made and, and out on the water? That's a good question. Um, Right now, we're good. We're really in stealth mode right now. So, um, like, if you go on my website, there's no indication that we've done we're doing any of this. It's 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 something we want to unveil when we have something really good to unveil. Exclusive um, seasteading today podcast. <laughs> that's right. That's right. This is a rare insider look for your audience only. Um, when we, you know, I have enough funding, I have enough volunteers. It's, it's, it's not something I have a lot of people, honestly, trying to throw money at me right now. It's so funny. It's like, oh my gosh. Like, like that, I said, that sounds to, like a good thing. <laughs> I was just, yeah, I was just talking to a friend of a, a friend's uncle and, you know, telling him informally about the idea. And he's like, I want to, I want to, I want to cash out my IRA and, and put a hundred thousand dollars in your company. I'm like, that's awesome. That's awesome. But, um, we don't need it. <laughs> there will come a point, I'm sure, when we do like a friends and family round investment funding. Something like that will happen eventually. And it probably won't be until after we finish the first one. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have, I have, how do you, how do you build uh, a company and build excitement for something? It really helps to have something to show. And once we build that first one and, and can invite like the press onto it and say, okay, here's the actual structure. Here's what it looks like. I think there's going to be a huge, huge like amount of excitement about it in, in a lot of circles. I mean, the number of applications for a structure like this are just, I could literally talk your ear off about it. Um, so many industries I've, I've had people like, like the vertical structure, um, which we call the spar design on our website, which is uh, ventivefloathouse.com, by the way. Mm -hmm. the, the vertical version that we have can survive in the deep ocean by itself. It does not need any support or any, anything else around it. So it's very good for like business and scientific applications. And I mean, just one idea surrounding that could be a whole industry where um, I have people who want to take that vertical structure and put offshore um, data centers in them because you can very much cheap, more cheaply cool a data center 
in the water. And there's advantages to being in a, a non-jurisdiction, like you're outside of a, of, a, of a state influence, basically. You're in international mm-hmm. waters. So <clears throat> um, you're not subject to certain laws and rules that otherwise plague data, data centers. Um, so if we could do that, that that's like a whole industry to itself. That may be actually the cheapest way to run a data center would be to do it out there in a float house. Um, and you have applications with fishing, you have applications with, with, uh, humanitarian, uh, issues and, and, and relief, which is so, so many things. So we, yeah. Well, I, you know, I see articles every day about different, um, ocean explorers or researchers, people who want to study a fish population or study Mm -hmm. the, the underwater geography, um, you know, or, or minerals that are at the bottom of the ocean. So having a station where the researchers could, um, could rest and sleep. I think that would save a lot of their costs. I mean, I remember hearing about one project, they were traveling around the world, collecting plankton samples and studying them, you know, and so having, having a, a, a stopping point and a comfortable place to stay for the folks who are doing that work, I can imagine decrease the costs of that kind of research and, and would be very attractive to them. Absolutely. We're, we're looking at the float house as a platform for people to do other things with it. And we don't necessarily know right now what those things will end up being. Um, there's even uses on land I've found. Um, but as a platform, there's, there's, it, it allows you to do something that currently you cannot do, which is to basically make useful space out on the water, permanent useful mm-hmm. space. And the number of applications you can do with that are just unlimited, honestly. Um, we are also planning to, what's the next step after we actually build the first one. So I expect to market these to the San Francisco market and sell them as floating houses up there because they have such a housing crunch up there and they have very high housing prices also. (laughs) Sure. But, you know, selling them as, as just a, a live in boat is great because, Everyone understands what, you know, what living in a boat is. They don't necessarily understand what a seastead is, but they understand seeing something that's, that you live in. And these are going to be really comfortable and also not going to like react the way that people are used to normal boats because these are 10 times heavier than a normal boat, (laughs) have a different hull design and you're not going to get seasick on these ever, but, um, so do you have a sense of, um, well, I know you have different models and, and different configurations, but, uh, you know, for, for that market of people who want to own a home, do you have a sense of the price range that you want to sell these at? Well, I do. And every time I started showing people what I was doing, they told me to raise my prices. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, with a lot of new products, you kind of have to target the, the, higher end of the market to get started, to get enough, you know, funding to fund the company and keep things going. So initially we're funding that we're, we're targeting that high end San Francisco market. We're probably going to, you know, release the first of these at a million dollars. And yeah, I still have people at that price range telling me to raise my prices. It's crazy. Uh, the average price for a 2000 square foot house in San Francisco is $1 million, actually higher now. Um, so it starts there, but this the structure isn't that expensive to build. It's mainly turning into a house that's expensive, you know, adding the plumbing and the water and all that, the kitchen and the bathroom and the, everything, the appliances. <clears throat> so 
there is a lot of opportunity for cost cutting. And I do have new production processes we can get into that will allow us to bring the price way, 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 way down. So, oh, so okay. So I'm a bit confused. So if someone can afford to buy a million dollar home in San Francisco, are there million dollar homes available for them to buy? Like why, why would they turn to a floating home if they can already spend a million dollars on a home? <laughs> That's because Oakland is averaging a million dollars right now. And Oakland oh. isn't anywhere near San Francisco. <laughs> so okay. if you spend a million dollars, if you wanted a house in like San Francisco or even like near it, it's, it's more than a million dollars now. So it would be worthwhile to someone. I mean, I think you would also need daily transportation commuters from their floating home into the city. Uh, Not if you're to, um, in a in a marina. And there's a lot of marinas right off of San Francisco. But if you uh, – oh, you mean like commuters, like people who are commuting? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy because if – let's say you're a newcomer, but you're being paid well enough to buy a million-dollar house. You – what do you what do you do? <laughs> you're mm-hmm. kind of you're kind of in trouble. But, do, there. but but would you need a house, and then also would you need to own a boat to be able to get to your house to work every day? Probably. I mean, if you're anchoring out, but if you if you're staying in a marina, you're probably going to spend twelve hundred a month on slip fees. If you anchor out, you're not spending anything. But they also won't let you anchor out in in San Francisco Harbor anymore. Like that's getting harder and harder. So you could go into the Delta or you could go, you could go out into the ocean where we're planning a seastead. And that's what I wanted, wanted to tell you about next is our long, long-term goal of where this is going. <clears throat> so uh, Blue Sea back in 2013 had this idea. They wanted to put that, that, that um, cruise ship just outside San Francisco, a little bit to the south in international waters, about 14 miles out. And they were going to, let people come there who have H1P visa problems. And I thought that was an absolutely great idea. I thought that was a great idea. And when they were forced to quit that idea for various reasons, um, I thought, you know, if I can, let me take up that idea, take up that, that um, goal and let's do it because you know, some of the problems they ran into were the idea that buying a cruise ship and retrofitting it would be too expensive and, you know, various things like that. And they wanted, I think it was 15 to 30 million to get started. And I recognized that with my modular structure, we could, we could start for much, much cheaper. So it would become much less risky to actually build a seastead out there. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the planning we've done for that is I think about 22, about 22 float houses would be enough to, to support an um, early seasteading city out there f- for about 300 or more people, which is about where you want to start. We don't have to build it for a, a thousand or 10,000 people right off the bat. We can grow it over time using these modular structures. And because it's, it's designed primarily for people who have H1B visa problems, if, let me explain that. Um, if you go to college here, but you're not a citizen and you graduate and you want to stay in the U S and, start a company or work, you have to get an H-1B visa. Um, the government only hands out about 65,000 of these per year, but every year you have 250,000 people who apply for an H-1B visa. So that's, it's over 150,000 people who just never get one and can't stay. So by creating a seastead island just outside of San Francisco, we can allow people to, who don't get an H-1B visa to move to that seastead 
start their company or work for San Francisco companies on the Seastead. And that way we actually start up an economy on the Seastead. The biggest thing that Seasteading is really lacking is the ability to build some kind of economy out there in the ocean. And I think that's going to be, for me at least, that's like the ideal because these it's literally life-changing for these people if they can stay in the U.S. or have to go home because the amount of opportunity and financing that available to them back in third world countries is so much less than what it is if they can stay in San Francisco or in the U.S. <clears throat> so by creating a visa island out there, we can solve all these problems and create a space for people who would literally give like their, their arm and their leg to stay. And that's the kind of customers that you really want, you know, people who sure. are, are just absolutely you're going to change their life if you can help them or not. And if we can do that, if we can get an economy going out there, then that that changes the game. At that point, we're going to have, you know, even U.S. citizens who just want to live out there because it's cool. You're going to have people coming from around the world to do secondary services. We'll set up supermarkets, uh, entertainment, all kinds of stuff. Now we've got a city going on the water. That's the, that's the dream, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, I think um, we're coming to the end of our conversation, but if do you have any advice for people who are interested in starting a business to, to help the seasteading movement along so that we can get these floating cities out there on the water? Um, <clears throat> people who want to start a business to help seasteading? Yes. Um, well, you have to compare your own skills and abilities with what is actually needed out there. So I think a lot of people probably encountered seasteading the same way I did, but since they didn't have my background of house building and uh, engineering, they probably just walked away and went and did something else and said, well, I, I can't do that. So let me just go elsewhere. <clears throat> but the, when seasteading actually gets off the ground, the range of available opportunities is going to explode. And there's going to be something like a gold rush because you're going to have a lot of people who need things out there and a lot of demand for services. <laughs> mm -hmm. So right now it's like the only thing you, anyone could possibly build is a few things like, like building a seastead or, or I'm, I'm not exactly sure, but let's say, let's say in a year from now, I'm actually building these seasteads and offering them to the, to the public. I know that I'm not going to have time to do a lot of things secondarily with those seasteads. I'm going to be, I'm just going to be building these, these structures. But what I know is, is that if you had access to these structures, there's like 15 or 20 different industries that you could walk up to and pitch to and say, Hey, look at this. We can do something with this and, and partner with them and go out and actually do it. There's going to be just an explosion of opportunity. And that's, that's what I'm really looking forward to. <clears throat> The idea of seasteading as a platform to enable other ideas to happen. That's sure. where it starts to multiply. Great. And so you, you tell us that your website again and where else people can see your designs and learn about um, and follow the progress of Ventive Float House. Sure. The, uh, the website is www.ventive, like inventive, ventivefloathouse.com, just like it sounds. And there's not a ton of news on there. It's just designed to introduce the idea to people. Um, later, we will be updating news on seasetting 
the Seasteading subreddit, of course, which I'm a moderator of on Reddit. And um, I do keep a couple things on floathouse.com. Like I, I use, um, sorry, not floathouse.com, um, the floathouse subreddit. There's a floathouse subreddit that I use as kind of a production diary where I collect ideas, yeah, but news will be there too. And of course, there's the Ventive subreddit. But um, I don't know, for, for now, it's going to be hard to get news out of me unless you invite me to do an interview like this kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we, we definitely will and look for new ways to inform people about the work that you're doing because it sounds like, I mean, it's the necessary work to be doing at this time, building structures so that then this whole industry of seasteading can get off the ground and provide that platform that you described for, for all kinds of other um, seasteading industries. Absolutely. I think once we prove it's going to be done, that it will be done broadly and all around the world. I mean, even just locations, like so many people have pitched me awesome locations to put this structure, like do this, do that, do that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and the amount of ideas, it's, it's staggering. Like uh, I've had people pitching me restaurants and traveling restaurants, take a five-star or a three-star Michelin chef, put them on a floating restaurant, you know, move them around city to city. It's, it's crazy. Fun stuff like that. This It's going to be a lot of stuff is going to open up that we can do. Sounds great. Anything else you'd like to say? I just wanted to thank you for having me on. Thank you for, for being here and um, we'll, we'll talk again soon. I'm sure. The Seasteading Today podcast is produced by John Bush. Your host is Carly Jackson. Send feedback and questions to podcast at seasteading.org. To support the podcast and the Seasteading mission, go to seasteading.org slash donate. If you'd like to learn more, read the book, Seasteading, How Floating Nations Will Restore the Environment, Enrich the Poor, Cure the Sick, and Liberate Humanity from Politicians. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast feed and we'll save you a spot on a seastead.